In Mark chapter 6, uh, we're going to be starting a new theme this evening. We're only going to cover six verses, the first part of verse 6 even, not all of six verses. Uh, so far in Christ's early ministry, uh, I said that you could write the words authority or the word popularity down as being the main emphases that Mark, the gospel writer, will give. Um, as I come to Mark chapter 6, uh, spent uh, several weeks here, the last, or se- several times in the last few weeks, just reading through Mark. Just really, especially these middle chapters, you know, what's going on in Mark 6? How is this different? How's, what's, what's going on in Mark 7 and Mark 8? I got an English copy of the Bible, and I just kept reading the ESV over and over and over again and trying to think about, okay, what is the major emphasis that we follow uh, here? Because I think there is a definite shift in chapter 6. I was just reading through it over and over again. I came to a, another theme, I think, that begins here and that will run for the entire chapter. And it might not be uh, especially obvious at first, but I hope in the next four sermons I'll be able to kind of show you how this theme is, is evident in Mark chapter 6. And so I think he moves from popularity and authority of Jesus to his rejection. His rejection. And so in, in Mark chapter 6, it's obvious at the beginning Jesus is going to be rejected. He's rejected by his hometown. But uh, what I see throughout the rest of the chapter is not only is Jesus rejected, his, uh, his forerunners rejected, his followers or his 12 disciples are rejected, or he makes plans in case they are rejected. And then at the end of Mark chapter 6, Jesus is rejected again. And so uh, as, we go, as we go through this, uh, I think it will be helpful. Uh, when we started into our study of Mark, I declared a theme for the book, okay, and you've seen probably the, the little graphic image we put up there sometimes, and it's, uh, I'm not even going to ask you because you, you probably don't know, but uh, it's following the suffering servant. Remember that little picture, following the suffering servant? You may have thought to this point in the gospel, man, Pastor Brent really blew it on that theme, you know, because like I haven't seen much about suffering servant to this point. Well, from this point on in the gospel, I think that theme begins, and, and it starts here with rejection. You see suffering a little bit later on in Mark chapter 8. If you look in verses 34 and 35, Jesus calls the disciples to be willing to suffer and take up their cross. It says, verse 34, and calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's where you get following a suffering servant. But chapter 6, what Mark does, just a few chapters before that, in verses 1 through 6, is he lays the groundwork by first discussing some of the sufferings of Jesus. The fact that he is and has been uh, rejected. And so... um, As we go through Mark chapter 6, I think for those of us who love Christ, it will be painful to see the thorough and brazen way in which people reject him. But I think it will also inform us as to the nature of our own call as Christians and followers of Jesus. So I think it will harden us and strengthen us for any level of suffering or rejection that we face as well. So what I want to do is I want to look at verses 1 through 6. Let's look at verse 1 to begin. I actually read the whole way through the text this time. It says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, 
saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Well, if you're taking notes and uh, you like to write down my outline, it's very simple tonight, two points, and it's even alliterated. Okay, I, I learned some things uh, from some other speakers around here. So it's alliterated, two R's. Okay, uh, Verses 1 through 3, I think we see uh, the rejection of Jesus, and then we see his response. Okay, So there's your outline. You can fall asleep. No, don't fall asleep. Rejection and response. Verses 1 through 3 give a clear description of the first instance of rejection of Jesus and his disciples after their, their trip from Capernaum to his hometown. Interestingly, Mark here doesn't tell us what Jesus' hometown is or where he's from, although he's already done that. And some of the parallel accounts make it, make it clear it's, it's Nazareth. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 9, we know that Jesus left his hometown, Nazareth, to go to see John the Baptist beyond the Jordan to be baptized. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 24, the demon... Uh, calls out to Jesus, and he calls him a Nazarene. And uh, say what you will about demons, uh, they normally get it right when they identify Jesus. So he's from Nazareth. Well, after Jesus arrives in his hometown, he takes the opportunity to speak in his hometown synagogue on, on a Sabbath. And his teaching strikes the people. They wonder where he got such profound wisdom. And they're also impressed with his mighty works. It says uh, especially the mighty works that he did that were done by his hands. Uh, the way of saying it like that is just a, kind of an unusual idiom. Okay, it's, it seems as if uh, they, they, they might be fascinated or drawn to the mis- miraculous healings that came as a result of Jesus laying his hands on people. They'd heard about how Jesus healed people, but now they're seeing his hands work for themselves. So in verse 2 in your Bible, it says that they were astonished. You see that in the middle of the verse? They were astonished. Now, when I come across this word in the Gospel of Mark, I think it's used five times. Every other time it's used, it's used positively. Someone just being flabbergasted, astounded at something. Actually, that's the way I'm going to take it here as well, because of the other occurrences. I think that their, their first impression of Jesus, when they hear the wisdom of his teaching, and they see the mighty works with his hands, they're amazed. But they soon talk themselves out of it. And they do that by asking a few questions in verse 3, and I want to Consider these questions they ask. First, they ask, is this not the carpenter? Sadly, although although the demons do know who Jesus is, they can recognize him. These human beings here can't see it. Uh, One commentator, David Garland, says that uh, they're simply implying here they think that he is a local artisan. 
And uh, for me, one of the ironical things that I saw in studying the, the passage this week is, uh, you know, instead of focusing on how Jesus used his hands to heal people, they claim that he's a common worker like the rest of them. And that he uses his hands to cut wood. He's a carpenter. So they begin to talk themselves out of this. So they say, is this not a car- the carpenter? Then they ask, is this not Mary's son? Now this statement, this question, is, is actually a little bit more difficult to consider. Now one of the things I found really interesting, I never knew before tonight, is, or uh, this week, is that the city of Nazareth, the town of Nazareth, was actually a very insignificant town. I, kn- I knew it was small. As I did s- study and research this week, archaeologists, expert archaeologists, suggested that the town may have only had 150 people or so during Jesus' time. Maybe high-end, <coughs> up to 200. And so they know exactly who this person is. They say, is this not Mary's boy? But actually, there's some controversy about that designation, that question. Is this not the son of Mary? And the controversy has to deal with, you know, why uh, they would use this designation, okay? Some believe that by this time, maybe Joseph has passed away, okay? And I I think that there's a good chance, you know, uh, not seeing him again uh, in the gospel accounts and literature, I think there's a good chance that Joseph may actually have passed away. That, That could be the explanation here, that, that might be why they call Jesus Mary's boy instead of Joseph's boy, because he's, he's no longer alive. That's a very widely held idea, and it's, I think it's quite possible. However, I want to suggest something a bit different, or something that could be used in conjunction with that. Although it's not very popular among writers, I think Jewish tradition and a few Jewish sources point me in a different direction. I think it's, it's likely that they refer to Jesus as Mary's son or Mary's boy as a way of attacking Jesus' legitimacy. It's a way of attacking his legitimacy. In other words, they're claiming that, Mary's, that Jesus is Mary's illegitimate son from someone other than Joseph. So they read through the commentaries. I don't think many of them really consider some of the Jewish sources on this. There, there are several, actually, that would would help us. And you know, if you're just reading through some of the early rabbis and, and how they're talking about each other, different men, they're always, they had a certain uh, way of describing a person. It was always, you know, blank, son of blank. Okay, and it, it, so, so something like, you know, Joseph, son of Abraham. Can they talk about the other rabbis like this too, just to give a little bit of distinction of which Joseph you're talking about. He's Joseph, son of Abraham. I found even in, in some of the, uh, in, in a portion of the, the Talmud, where a, a rabbi explains that even after a father dies, you still refer to the son as Brent, son of Steve. Okay? And so what's going on in the town of Nazareth is they're breaking Jewish protocol. You, you would never say, Jesus, son of Mary. You'd say, Jesus, son of Joseph. Okay, and so I want to suggest that these town people are breaking protocol, and it's likely because they think, possibly, that Jesus is an illegitimate son or the product of promiscuity. Now, third, they ask, 
is this not the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Okay, now as a general rule, we, we don't know much about the brothers of Jesus. Okay, we know a little bit about some of them. But I think the simplest way to understand this text is to say that these brothers were children of Mary, born to Mary and Joseph. Okay, there, there is a text in Matthew's gospel that would be important, especially as you're reasoning with someone who believes there are some people, some, uh, some within Protestant, or not Protestant, some within Christianity that would claim that uh, Mary was perpetually a virgin, that she never knew a man. Okay, but the text, one of the texts you could consider on that is Matthew chapter 1 and verse 25, and we won't go there, but that at least strongly implies that there was a time after Jesus was born that Mary and Joseph came together. Okay, so when I read these brothers here, I think that these are younger brothers of Jesus, uh, probably of Mary and Joseph. Okay, so uh, now, having said that, at this point in Jesus' life, I think none of these brothers were believers. Okay, um, a few chapters before, you remember in Mark's gospel, Jesus' brothers and Mary came to seize him because they were saying he was out of his mind. They'd made the trip from Nazareth to Capernaum to seize him. Um, and and it, I, I think it's not really until much later that they come to know Jesus as their Savior. We, we won't turn there, but in Acts chapter 1, one of the things I noted this week or saw was uh, when Jesus is resurrected and he ascends up into heaven, there's a group of 120 followers of his, disciples of his, who are gathered in Jerusalem praying. And among them are the 12 disciples and Mary, and it says, and the brothers of Jesus. So while it's, it's true that they reject him here, they're not followers of his, somewhere after his resurrection, they do become followers of Jesus. They believe in him. So that the brothers we know anything about, we, we know James, right? You know who James, the brother of Jesus is? James becomes a believer later on, and he becomes a prominent leader in the church of Jerusalem. He becomes the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. James, the brother of Jesus, also wrote a book. You want to guess which one it is? You still awake? The epistle of James, which maybe it might be the first epistle written in the entire New Testament. It's written very early on. It's interesting to me how James identifies himself in that epistle, not James, the brother of Jesus, but James, a servant, servant of Jesus. Well, we know uh, as well about James, according to tradition, about 15 or 20 years later, he's martyred because he refuses to recant on the name of Jesus. The way tradition goes, they take James on top of the temple, 70 or 80 feet up in the air, and they say, recant. You know, you need to... You need to say that Jesus is not the Son of God, and he refuses to, so they push him over. He falls off the temple. He, he breaks both legs, but he somehow survives. And so they go down, and they, they give him one last chance to recant, and he refuses to recant. They're broken legs, and they, they beat him to death with a club. And so although he rejects Jesus, and he's not a follower of his, something happened in James's life. He saw that his brother was the Son of God. Judas here, I think, uh, is in reference or can be referred to as Jude. Jude, who wrote, uh, most likely, the, the author of the epistle of Jude. 
But then they, they ask as well if his sisters don't live with them in the town. Is this, aren't his sisters living here with us? We don't know much about his sisters either. These would be younger sisters of Jesus, and it seems as if they must have married men and remained in the town of Nazareth. But the point of all these questions is that they believe, you know, they know Jesus is a local boy, and they think that they've got him pegged. We know all about him. And uh, so they really struggle with this. They kind of talk themselves out of their initial astonishment. Uh, you know, I, I was trying to think of how to illustrate this, and I, I just think it would be just about impossible. But can you, I don't know if, if you know of anyone uh, from your hometown who became famous. Uh, maybe even your home school, in your class, became famous. Yeah, we won't yell out all the famous names of the people from our hometowns. You know, but how does, you know, it make you feel that that person became famous. Are you proud of that? Maybe jealous? Or perhaps, if you knew them really well, you would be skeptical. Well, that's the emotion, I think, that the, the, the townspeople are feeling regarding Jesus. Their skeptical questions lead the author, Mark, to give a final assessment at the end of verse 3. Look at his final assessment. This is you know, so you've got the questions from the townspeople in quotation marks, and then here's Mark's take. And they took offense at him. Okay, so they go from astonishment to being offended at Jesus. And I think uh, that's because of the way that they had questioned and worked through all of these things. Now, one of the things that's helpful to me to realize was that in, in the ancient world here, they believed that someone would be defined by their geographical origins and their family roots. They did not share uh, what is common in our society. I was reading one, one author, and he called it the concept of upward mobility. Uh, so Mark Strauss writes about this. He says, in, in Western culture, he says, the possibility of upward mobility is taken for granted. The American dream is to move through hard work and ingenuity from poverty to wealth, from obscurity to fame, from powerlessness to a position of influence. But that's not how they thought in the first century. So according to their own cultural biases, Jesus could not be the Messiah. He's from this little town. He's one of us. He's a carpenter. So then uh, we move from there into the response in verses 4 through 6, and we can <coughs> go a little more quickly through that. You see the response of Jesus. Look in verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. In verse 4, Jesus comments about how a prophet is received, and he, there's a progression in verse 4. In his father's town, so I translate it, literally it's just be father's town, the town where his dad's from. Among his own relatives, I'd see that more like extended family, and then he gets even narrow, and in his direct household. Those three words get more and more narrow. And so, Jesus here expresses this idea in proverbial language. And he implies that his own rejection is similar to that of perhaps 
uh, what some of the other prophets faced in their own hometowns and among their own people. Okay, we, we don't know exactly who Jesus might have in mind here, although one of the parallel accounts, he gives some examples of Elisha and Elijah, how they went to different places other than their hometown to minister. It may be that Jesus has prophets like uh, Ezekiel in mind or Isaiah who were largely rejected for their message. People knew who they were. They dismissed their preaching and in their claims. In other words, I think what Jesus is doing here is he's giving some Old Testament roots, some Old Testament precedent for the fact that he, he himself, like the prophets, might be rejected by those people who most know him. Uh, Mark then explains that Jesus is, or he says, uh, Jesus could not do many mighty works there. And, uh, you know, as I I worked through that, uh, you know, I think that the point that Mark is making is that when Jesus is performing miracles, especially when he's healing people, one of the things that was a prerequisite for the healing of that person is that they would have faith. And so in that way, Jesus could not do many mighty works there because these people just are not believing that he would have the ability or the capacity to do that. Now, the text does say that he did perform a few healings. I think it would be implied that those people actually believe that Jesus could do it. But you have here Mark's account. Uh, He didn't do many mighty works there because they didn't have faith. And then the first part of verse 6 is how I close out this section. It says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. I think this is a final important synopsis of Jesus' perspective on his hometown. He marvels because they have no faith. Uh, the word marveled, again, is, is used repeatedly in Mark's gospel. Uh, this is the only time it's used of Jesus, however. Okay, and to me, it's, it's a sad testimony that the one thing that the Son of Man marvels at or is astounded at is the lack of faith among the people who know him the most. And so I think it should be shocking to us how these people can't believe in Jesus. I mean, he had, he had done so much. He'd been victorious over demons, disease, storms, death, yet they failed to believe. Well, as we, as we close here, I, I, I thought, you know, it would be good for us to focus on this and to, to think about how the text could relate to us. I, one of the lessons, I think, of course, that this text teaches is that the people who were most familiar with Jesus were the ones who were quick to dismiss him. And actually, as I thought about that in regards to uh, evangelical churches like ours across America, I thought, you know, there's, a, there's probably a strong word of warning here for us. Of course, we don't have Jesus walking among us. We're not from Jesus' hometown. But many evangelical churches, there are people who grow up hearing much about Jesus, only to reject him. And so... Uh, as a bit of a warning, I, I first would, would challenge any of you in the room as we, as we close this evening, perhaps you're familiar with the stories, but you're not a follower of Christ. You've heard the stories, you've heard much about Jesus, but it's not genuine and true for you. It can be very possible, even in a Sunday evening service, 
where the people have heard all the stories, heard all the stuff, and yet you're not genuine followers of Jesus. I think it's also a word of warning for us, especially as we relate to minister to our families and younger children or young people as they grow up, not to assume, not to assume. Just because someone knows all the stories, just because they can tell you about this miracle that Jesus did and that that he did and how Jesus used his hands here and I did that, doesn't mean that they're going to accept Jesus. And so I thought as a, as a way to close our service, we just pray that God would, would give us strength, would, would protect our church, that God would work in the lives of our young people so that there'd be genuine faith. They'd not just do that in the lives of our young people, but in any person here who's heard the stories, who's familiar with Jesus, but has not yet accepted him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to work through this, this brief text of Scripture. Lord, there is... Uh, There's a a shocking feel to this text for me. I knew it was coming, but even as I read this text, and I read it over and over again, I just, it's hard to understand how the hometown of Jesus, 150, 200 citizens of this little town, are first astounded or amazed at Jesus, and then they talk themselves out of it. They ask skeptical question after skeptical question after skeptical question so that Mark then says, and they took offense at Jesus. Lord, I pray that as we go through the Gospels, as we uplift the person and work of Jesus Christ, and and we go through story by story, and people become more familiar with Jesus, I pray, uh, dear Father, that you would protect us from talking ourselves out of being astounded at Jesus. Lord, perhaps there are some people in our assembly that meet with us every week who hear the stories, they yawn. Perhaps they have decided or will decide at some point to reject Jesus. I pray, Lord, that uh, for their sake, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ and your glory, that you would convert them, that you would turn them to yourself. And Lord, we're so grateful for those of us who do know Jesus and and who love him. We pray that as we hear more and more stories, as we become more and more familiar with the God-man who makes demands, who's authoritative, who's popular and yet rejected by this world, I pray that our hearts would in no way reject what we hear, but that we would embrace the Son of God and learn to love him even more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.